Hi everyone, this is Andrew Davies from Insight Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers. Today we are joined by Justin Poplau and Marilena Nida. Justin is a postdoc and Marilena is a PhD student in Ileana Hanganu Opat's group at the Institute for Developmental Neurophysiology, Center for Molecular Neurobiology at University Medical Center, Hamburg-Eppendorf. They recently presented their research on prefrontal networks in developing head-fixed mice and the role of these networks in cognition and models of neurodevelopmental diseases. Let's dive in. Our first question here, do you think that similar developmental mechanisms to what you've presented here are present in humans? And if that's the case, are there any studies that support this? Ah, that is a good question. Marlene, it's fine. I would start and I think you also have something to say to it. Okay, so what first comes to my mind uh, is the second part where I presented something about the adolescent period and what structural changes we find during this period. I, as I know, there are also many post-mortem studies in humans showing that there's a temporal augmentation of gray matter and also brain volume and also spine density that peak during adolescence, especially within frontal regions. And yeah, that really nicely also mirrors what we see in the mice. Also, there are some studies showing that stimulus-induced activity during working memory is altered during adolescence and is increased in comparison to younger or older age. So it really, yeah, nicely fits to what we are seeing in the mouse. Yeah, I'm also looking forward. Now also would like to extend this to um, more cognitive behavioral tasks to see if the changes during behavior also match the chain age-dependent changes in humans. Fantastic. Yeah, and looking at the neuropsychiatric diseases, it's already known that in prodromal symptoms, they appear already during adolescence. So we would expect a similar development in the prefrontal cortex hippocampal network. A nice aim would be that finding periods or finding markers that could be used to see in patients and or see before patients have the first onset and already could have a window where you could start treatment earlier. Great. Would one possible outcome of this work then be to identify patients before the development of symptoms, for example? So that would be basically, that would be a great solution if you could do this. And then indeed already during early activity markers that are also seen for the onset of symptoms. For example, there is a quite nice, which you also can measure with EEG. There is this, what we call one over F slope. So there's a tendency, if you calculate the power spectra of the neuronal activity, there's this tendency that with increasing frequency, the power of oscillation decreases. And this leads to a steepness of the power spectra. And if you fit this with a linear regression model, you have the slope. And the slope can give you a lot of information about the excitation inhibition balance within the network. We see across development a shift towards more inhibition within the prefrontal cortex. 
And in mouse models of mental disorders, this shift is altered. And interestingly, when we look at EEG data of humans, so we have some correlations with them, we also see a similar shift, age-dependent shift in the humans. So it might be that especially this readout might be a quite nice symptom. Yeah, it describes the symptoms quite nice or could be an early biomarker of disease. So let's see what's coming out of our future collaborations. But it, this one is especially really promising. Fantastic. Okay. Good. There would be one really nice outcome. Another one might be that we've identified time windows where the change, where there are especially changes within the two areas or the network in mental disorders and where they're when relating this time windows to humans to maybe find periods where treatment could be most effective. Fantastic. Okay, that's wonderful. A couple of uh, methodological questions as well uh, for you here. The first one is, does the chronic implantation and recording procedure impact brain development? And if yes, how could this influence your results? That is really a good question. Of course, when we established this method, yeah, we did a lot of control experiments to account for such possible effects. And the first thing that we did, we compared the activity of chronically recorded mice to ones that were acutely recorded. And we see also with a lot of, a lot of mice, no changes. So they have pretty similar brain activity at adult age. So that's the first hint that it's not inducing major changes with the brain activity. However, we also looked at the morphology and it's indeed the case that the motor areas are less curved, so that leads to a slightly lower cortical signals of the motor areas. However, gross brain dimensions and also the brain size as the cortical signals of the areas that are rec recording from is not affected. So that's pretty similar between controls and chronically recorded mice. And to rule out that there are, if there are some effects to rule them out, we also use for our statistics linear mixed effect models, where we, for example, also account for the recording number to rule out if there are effects to yeah, account for them within our statistical model. Okay, fantastic. So you've done a number of validation studies, and as far yeah. as you can tell, there is no impact effectively then. Uh, another sort of methodological question, your time for acclimating the mice to the head fixed condition is quite short. Why are you using such short training time and is it sufficient basically? To the why we use it because we do want to start the recordings as early as we can. So we try to monitor across the whole developmental period. And yes, it seems to work. It, no, it works very well. It's if you use the the really young mice, they get seem to be more flexible and to adapt to this change in how they can behave during this head fixation, they seem to adapt very well. And since we don't see any difference in movement during the whole recording sessions, so over across the whole age frame, there's no difference, even though later on they were on the mobile home cage much more often, we don't see a difference. So they adapt very fast and the time is sufficient to train them. We do the training at least two times for 30 minutes. Okay, fantastic. So in effect, you're looking at a narrow developmental window. So you, out of necessity, then need to use relatively brief windows for acclimation, I suppose. Yes. Fantastic. Uh, here's a great question. I think uh, 
Does oscillatory activity influence myelination patterns in developing neurons? That is a good question. I have to admit that we never had a detailed look into it. So we only have some preliminary data. For example, in the early stimulation model, we looked at the corpus callosum, where the interhemispheric connections are connected. And there is especially this myelination is really mandatory to ensure good communication between the brain hemispheres. And we found indeed that this early stimulation leads also to an increase in myelination. So there are also other studies showing that indeed activity also influences myelination. So now it is known that in mental diseases, the myelination strength, especially in within interhemispheric connectivity, is reduced as also the communication between brain hemispheres. So we are now planning within another project also to look at the myelination strength within our mouse models and compare the two controls. Because as we presented, many of them have lower or altered activity during development, which might also affect the myelination. Okay, fantastic. Many of the projects that you showed focused on the L2 and 3 pyramidal neurons. Why did you focus on those? And do you think similar dynamics are present in the other prefrontal layers? <laughs> uh, the, the special layer to three pyramidal nodes, yeah. As I already showed you, so this population really, we focused, started focusing on them because it was really the only population that we found at neonatal age that really induces fast rhythmic activity. So these patterns are very sparse during neonatal development. And then during the later studies, we also found that this population is specifically affected in this GE mouse model. And also when stimulating them, we really induce lasting changes of the prefrontal security. And it is interestingly also known that in humans, for example, with schizophrenia, especially this layer to three pyramidal neuron population is strongly affected. For example, the patients and postmortem studies showed that they have decreased spine densities or also an increased number of differentially expressed genes. And there are also studies showing, also coming back to this microglia neuron interaction, that especially these layer to three pyramid neurons are vulnerable to microglia mediated overpruning. So as we saw it in our model, the microglia are everywhere, but only within layer to three, they, yeah, have this dysregulation of normal homeostasis. And I think yeah, it's really a population where one should focus more on because it's um, really many studies showing that also in other diseases, especially this population is affected. And yeah, we address, try now to address that on more molecular level to how, somehow identify markers, why these neurons are so sensitive to such processes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.